0: It's fair to say that the tobacco industry is one of the most controversial ones out there, with the phrase big tobacco almost a meme, a shorthand for unscrupulous business practices. No wonder then that tobacco companies are trying to remake themselves, companies like Philip Morris International. PMI has a history dating back to the 1840s, and yet, today, their tagline is delivering a smoke-free future. Over the course of ten years, they've seen a third drop in the volume of cigarette sales. They're keen to talk about their story of transformation, which is why they sponsor this podcast. So what's really going on? I'm Cindy Yu, The Spectator's assistant editor, and on this episode, I'll be taking a look at the question of whether controversial companies can really change. First, I'm speaking to David Miller, a lecturer at Princeton where he specialises in faith and ethics. He's been commissioned by PMI to author a report all about corporate change. David, thanks for coming on. You're an ethicist by trade. So can you tell me about this report that you've done for PMI? What is the question that you're trying to answer? and What's your answer for it?
1: First of all, thank you for having me. The question I'm I'm trying to answer and, and help many organizations think about is transformation and change. There are so many industry sectors where what was best practice five or 50 years ago today is seen as horrible and we shouldn't do it. So issues come up of conflict, of internal and external conflicts, judgmentalism. And what most of the people who write about corporate transformation or any organization seeking to transform or change itself, most just focus on the entity itself. So what is company A going to do better and change? And that's important and necessary. But what we tried, my co-author, Michael Tate, and I tried to do in this is to also look at the external actors, the social activists and regulators and other people who have an interest in this change. And what we discovered is sometimes the very people who want companies, organizations to change, actually stand in the way of that change. There's a certain irony to it.
0: Is that because they try to push for change too fast or too extreme in a way?
1: It depends what their agenda is. In the white paper wrote, we talked about one organization in the food sector, for example, it's a hypothetical, mm-hmm. but there's a real company behind it. And they wanted to increase their practices for animal welfare. And what was deemed best practice 20 years ago is not today, how, how you handle animal welfare issues in the food sector, meat in particular. And there's one organization they invited to come talk to the senior executive team to say, we want to hear your voices, what you think we should do. Help us make these changes we really want to make. And the group said, we don't want you to succeed. We want you to be dead. We want you out of business. So some activist organizations have their own agenda, and it's not really aligned with what they publicly purport. And, of course, many really do want the organization to change, and they're thrilled, and they'll cooperate. So we looked at external entities as Mm. well as internal to, to get over the suspicion that exists and to find a, maybe a nobler or better way to help companies with pro-social ways of thinking about things to make these changes.
0: And is that to bring their critics on board so that they can you know, have this kind of constructive process but without saying eradicating a complete company or industry?
1: Yeah. I mean, it varies, of course, group by group, but it's really important to have conversation partners that, because there's there's a social impact to everything you do as a large corporation. And to get the guidance and thoughts, there's a treasure trove of knowledge that these companies have, like taking in the food sector. Mm-hmm. They understand probably more about animal welfare than most medical communities and veterinarian communities because they've been doing this for years and years and years. So if you can come in and have other voices constructively help you, well, that's, it's a win-win for everyone. Society is, is helped by this. But if you're excluded from the conversation, because sometimes they'll even say, we don't even want you to come to our conference. Right. We don't even want you to exist. So. But
0: some companies truly must be beyond the pale.
1: Or do you, think, sure. do you think
0: no company is beyond a pale if they're willing to transform enough?
1: Well, so one of the things we talk about, that very question in the paper is something we call the, the transformation assessment model. Like, how do you assess if you're being told mm. the truth, frankly? And it, it breaks down into three different – think, picture a cube with three different vectors. One is is believability. I mean, is this real or is it essentially window dressing? Uh-huh. Or are you only doing it because of a crisis and you have to respond to public complaint? The other vector that we can measure is buy in. Is there real buy in from the board, from the directors, from all the employees? Or is there internal turmoil? You have the old guard and the new guard. And lastly, you have to have some barometers of success that you have to look at people and processes and, and scrutiny. So this model allows a company to self assess itself with certain measurements, but likewise for other organizations to self-assess themselves. So we think uh, this transformation assessment model is a, a fresh contribution to finding out is it real or is it a joke?
0: So when I got to that part of your report, I was quite interested to see that you had applied it to two hypothetical companies. One is the food industry, one you've already mentioned, and the other one is an automotive manufacturer who's trying to go into electric vehicles. And to play devil's advocate, I think it's in the buying section, you kind of question whether or not this hypothetical manufacturer of automobiles really has its heart in the right place when it tries to move into the EV sector. But what I thought at that point is, does it matter what its intentions are as long as it does that? I mean, from an ethical perspective, there's a quite an interesting argument for, I mean, almost consequentialism in this, isn't there? That yeah. If a company is doing the right things, does it really matter what its board members believe in?
1: It matters hugely because they're only doing it today right? because it pays today. The utilitarian dimension, as you say, from an ethics point of view. But have they bought into the principle, the concept, because you can't trust them with what they might do tomorrow if there's a new measurement or a new standard. So I think it matters hugely. Mm -hmm. It's nice that they go in the right direction and we can all for the moment be happy, but you can't rely on that for the future.
0: And have you applied this model to PMI?
1: Yes. And I've talked with several of the senior executives, and these are the very questions they're asking. The very questions they're asking. Because they realize that the, the the believability, the buy-in, and the barometers are really important, both for internal learning points as well as for external people who are observing and trying to say, is this organization really, really changing? Or is it just window dressing? So yeah, it's been absolutely a, seen as a useful tool.
0: Yeah. So would you say for PMI is a working program,
1: Absolutely. For any company it does it. Transformations, you you can't just flip a switch. I was in um, Zurich about a year ago, and there's a big Uh. ad there that said, transformation takes a week. (laughs) It's like... No, it takes seven years. I'm, I'm pulling a number out of the air, but it, it takes a while, particularly for changing the core. If you're trans, if you're just meddling at the fringes, then you're probably not doing a transformation. So any organization, whether it's the food sector, any of these industry sectors, it's a long, serious haul. A long, serious haul.
0: David Miller, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, what about PMI then? To what extent has this company changed its practices, and how much do we believe their pitch for a smoke-free future, especially when they are still very much in the business of selling cigarettes? I'm joined by Moira Gilchrist, Vice President of Strategic and Scientific Communications at PMI, together with Martin Van Der Weer, The Spectator's Business Editor, and Professor John Cotter, a leading theorist at Harvard Business School. Moira, PMI has a long history in the tobacco industry, where it's one of the dominant players, but your tagline is now delivering a smoke-free future. So, what does the company not believe in smoking anymore? Well, hello, Cindy, and thank you very much for for having me.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of a surprising tagline, I guess. If people have not um, really been paying close attention to what has been happening in my company over the last sort of eight eight years or so, we've basically going through a top to bottom transformation, which is about basically making our current product, which is cigarettes, obsolete. And I joined the company to be part of this, to come and bring ideas from the pharmaceutical industry to help us to develop and scientifically assess what we call smoke-free products, which are products that are designed to be a much better choice for adults who would otherwise continue to smoke and we've made really incredible progress, I think. People may not be aware of it, but now in just a short space of time, in about, let's say, five years, we have been able to transform our our bottom line. So now that we're in 2022, we have about 30% of our net revenues coming from these smoke-free products, which is
0: up from 2015, when 100% was -hmm. coming from cigarettes. And when you say smoke-free, they're not always tobacco-free, are they? Because when you say smoke people might think of vaping but you've got this heated tobacco which is quite an interesting idea
2: that's right we've actually got a portfolio of different products the idea being that there's not going to be one single product that's going to meet the needs of every single adult smoker who who doesn't quit so we have vaping products but we also have this heated tobacco product called icos which heats tobacco rather than burning it and reduces the production of the vast majority of the harmful chemicals that go on to cause smoking related diseases
0: now Moira, you're a scientist by trade, so you know much more about this than I do, but there's controversy over your heated tobacco products, isn't there? Because the WHO has said it's not reduced risk to human health, and the FDA in America has also rejected claims that use of the product is less harmful than other tobacco products. So what do you say to these critics? Well, that's not quite what FDA said. So we actually applied for and received
2: authorization as a modified risk tobacco product in 2020. So we applied in 2016. Mm-hmm. They spent many years going through all of the science, that we uh, submitted to them. And in 2020, they authorised as an MRTP, allowing us to make what's called reduced exposure claims. So in the United States, we can tell adult smokers that the product, if they switch to it completely from cigarettes they will reduce their exposure to harmful and potentially harmful chemicals. What they also said, and this has not really been widely reported on, is that that's likely to turn into a measurable reduction in both smoking-related disease and mortality in future studies. So it's all about time. It's about Mm -hmm. time to generate that data to be able to see definitively what the product does in terms of reducing risk.
0: John, I'd like to bring you in here because you've looked a lot at the transformation of major companies, you've theorised about it. What are the conditions for success in that process? And do you see those conditions in a case study like PMI?
3: Well, it takes a great deal to produce a sustainable transformation. And it's hard to find cases right now, uh, people being successful. Although the need for major significant and sustainable change goes far beyond tobacco or oil, it's affecting almost everybody in the public and private sector. I just looked into uh, Google's Engram this morning and put uh, Chief Transformation Officer And it searches a zillion books for that title, those words, from 1800 till today. And from 1800 until 1984, that doesn't exist. Then it starts going up rapidly, uh, almost straight up. And it's just one indication, the amount of change facing all of us the speed of the change, the volatility of the change, and the uncertainty that comes with it has been going up for some time now, starting with the shift from hunting and gathering to agriculture and cities, and then a big jump during the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, and then another big jump after World War II and the Digital Revolution. What is not caught up yet is our capacity collectively to actually transform organizations. Do we know that it's possible? Yes. Do we know the mistakes that people make? Yes, there's an emerging science, if you will, of change, I think, that people and CEOs everywhere need to be much more attuned to. And it has to do with, ultimately, the challenge is changing the very culture of a company, which is not easy to do. I mean, it's one thing to change products, reporting relationships, policies. It's another thing to change culture. And that's where these transformations usually stumble.
2: Yeah I mean I would completely agree with that and I think that's something in in PMI that we focused on from from the beginning understanding that this transformation was going to be quite threatening for people who'd spent you know sometimes 20 or 30 years learning the skill of how to operate in our in our legacy business And now we're suddenly faced with this completely new business that required different ways to commercialise, different ways to develop products, different ways to assess them, different regulations. And we understood that that would be quite threatening for people. So so the cultural element of the change was was really embedded from the very beginning. So people could understand how they could fit into this new paradigm and where they could be successful. And then also being honest with people if they were not going to be successful Mm. in in this new world. And I think we understood it. And I think we have been, I think, pretty successful in making the the entire company feel part of the transformation. Even people who are still working in the, the legacy business understand what their role is in the transformation too.
0: Martin, I want to bring you in here. Your latest book is called The Good, the Bad and the Greedy, which is all about more ethical capitalism and how we can bring that about. What do you think about how we judge real change when it comes to corporates?
4: Yes, I suppose the key to this, I mean, the word that seems most important to me is sincerity in this. And if we just shift away from the tobacco industry for a second, the automotive industry is a very good example Ten years ago, it was basically saying we're tooled up to build diesel and petrol cars for the next generation. Electric vehicles don't trouble us with that. Now they're saying, no, no, we're going to have full ranges of electric cars by 2030. Likewise, the oil companies are as fast as they can and bearing in mind that we still need oil and gas for a generation yet, they are as fast as they can upping their investment in renewables. And that's it's transparent that it's a long transition. But I think it's it's sincere. And the three pressures on this, besides how do you manage your managers into the transition, which Moira just referred to, are what is the stock market pressing you to do? Will they re-rate your shares if you represent your portfolio in a certain way. And I suspect there's an element of that at Philip Morris. What do the consumers want you to do? Well, that's interesting with tobacco, because presumably there is still a world out there of people who quite like smoking, funnily enough. And the people who oppose smoking don't smoke, so they're not your consumers. And thirdly, there's government regulation and push, as it were, nudge from government, Governments have a very mixed reputation in this because what they tend to do is tax the bad things rather than ban them. They could have banned smoking, you know, a generation ago when the medical profession revealed just how, how dangerous it is. But in fact, they just taxed it. But by adjusting taxes and reliefs, governments can push transition. So it's a combination of all of those factors. But if there is sincerity at the heart of it, I think it can be done.
2: So just building on on what you said Martin I think you you raise some really important stakeholder groups that I think we can do more to help them understand the transformation we are going through and other companies like us are going through and also help them to understand what part they can play in that transformation I think governments is a is a perfect example and, and what we've noticed is that regulation and policy kind of lags innovation by quite a quite a distance and it's quite difficult to get governments around the world to understand what the promise could be of changing regulations in order to to be more strict on the most harmful forms of products and less strict on products that are that are a better choice and that's something we're encouraging governments to really look at as, as quickly as possible for example here in the united kingdom there could be some some really important measures that are done on smoke-free products that could really encourage even more adult smokers to to switch So From things the government like like, you mean? Yes. Things like yeah. differential taxation, things like differential marketing freedoms as well. I'm not talking about going on the television or radio or anything, but simple things like putting inserts and in cigarette packets about these alternative products could be a way to to help encourage the the transformation. And then I would say, you know, the the most important stakeholder group is the consumer because they are the ones who need the information to make better choices. They need access to these better products as well in any sector, not just in in tobacco. They need to understand what their alternatives are. And I think that's something that we can all help consumers to understand is, is what's out there and what does the science say about it.
0: John, to bring about a successful transformation, how much do you think that internal versus external factors matter in this? So Martin just gave a very good breakdown of the three types of external pressures that face companies, but as also internal pressures, as we've talked about whether or not you're sincere about the change, the ethical beliefs of your leaders. When I was speaking to Professor David Miller earlier, you know, he said that That was very, very important because that was what meant that the change would be sustainable. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's the most important of all? Or do you think external pressures can be brought to bear as well?
3: In the final analysis, it's all about the inside. I mean, that's what you're trying to change. And that isn't going to happen by decree. It's going to happen because people are brought along. Their mindset changes, their habits change, and ultimately their culture changes. As I said before, that's not an easy task, nor is it a short-term task by any stretch of the imagination. What we found through the research over the years is nothing can help both the inside and the outside get on board and support a transformation more than what I've called short-term wins, which is paying attention to producing a continuing series of new results that a sincere person would look at and say, something is going on here that is good for us. And short-term results can help external stakeholders behave in new ways that are useful, and it can help more and more employees get on board in innovative ways, because ultimately, All of the changes that need to be made are not going to be dictated by the executive suite or by a chief transformation officer. They're going to be produced by the staff. And more leadership from more people will make a huge difference. And nothing will pull in more people, get them engaged, get them on the right page in a sincere, straightforward way, like uh, little successes. Transformations fall all the time because they don't produce enough proof, if you will, on a regular basis that they are changing for the better with benefits to many people.
0: Mm. Martin, you'd mentioned stakeholders, shares Mm. and so on. There's an interesting figure which shows that PMI stock price is actually going down, that it peaked in 2017 at $122 and has now lost 20% of that value. Is that a trend that you see in investment funds and pensions and so on, where people are investing with more ethical concerns in mind and maybe, or or it could be that stakeholders are voting with their sure. wallets against the oil transformation?
4: I doubt that. I think what's happening there, Moira will be able to tell us, but I think what's happening there is that roughly around, 2017, anyway, in the middle of the last decade, came this fashion for ESG, environmental, social and governments as a factor in investment. And many large investment institutions started to switch their portfolios to match a kind of tick box exercise in ESG, where, you know, in this case, The S for social would be a big factor in whether you hold tobacco stocks or not. And indeed, many of your clients, that is the people whose money you manage, if you're a big institution, if asked which categories of stock would you exclude, they might well say tobacco, gambling and arms, for example. So if PMI was at the beginning of this transition back then, the investment world would have still seen it as a tobacco business and disinvested. So that trend doesn't surprise me at all. The question is whether by presenting the case that Moira has presented to us, they can achieve a re-rating of their stock that eliminates that. What I would describe in its early stages as very much a, a tick box thing. It wasn't a deeply thought policy in many cases. It was just, oops, that's tobacco. We knock that one out. So I'd love to hear from Moira how that's going in terms of talking to the investment community.
2: Well, I have to caveat what I'm about to say with the fact that I'm a scientist. I'm not an expert in the stock market. But what I do know is that we... we, None of us are. (laughs) Maybe except for Martin. (laughs) We we understood at the beginning of transformation that the investor community would be a really important one to take them along the journey. So we spent significant amount of time communicating to them about the early wins as you said john making sure they understood what the science said and also the investments we were making and the progress we were making in some of the early markets and and still today we're, we're doing that so it communication accurate communications there was really really important i think martin you make a very good point that about this tick box exercise i think we have suffered a bit from from funds just simply looking at the industry the sector we're Working in and rating us lower because of because of that, I think things are slowly changing though I think we, we start to see some progress with with people looking with a bit more granularity at what we 're doing and making a bit more informed decisions so I really hope that continues, but certainly it's it 's an area that we 're very very focused on
4: yeah I mean the balancing factor of course is that tobacco stocks have traditionally been relatively high yielding, so there are more specialist fund managers who have specifically gone heavy in tobacco stocks because in difficult times, in recession times and so on, they have been very solid investments. But those are the fund managers who are able or willing to leave aside the froth around ESG.
0: Moira, you guys are still mainly a tobacco company though, aren't you? You're still mainly a cigarette company because you yourself have said that around a third of your revenues come from non-cigarette revenues. Mm. And I think you've got a 2025 goal of making that over half, which is very admirable. But until then, you're still majority selling cigarettes. So if you wanted to, why don't you just stop selling cigarettes if you really care that much?
2: So I, I get this question, I think, once a week at least. No, I'm not that original. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy answering it because I think it's it's worth really, really thinking about and thinking about quite deeply. So we went through an exercise of deciding whether the best thing to do would be to sell our cigarette business to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So we could sell it to, I don't know, Chinese or whoever, a competitor. But we made the very deliberate decision not to do that because selling our cigarette business to a competitor does nothing for public health. All you do is you create a company or a new company or bigger company who is invested in selling more cigarettes, not fewer. What we wanted to do was to take the responsibility ourselves to cannibalize that legacy business with better alternatives and incentivize ourselves to sell fewer cigarettes and more of the better alternatives. Because we feel that there we can have not only a return for our shareholders and a lot of business in the long term for the company, but then also a positive impact on public health. And personally, again, I'm I'm not a business expert, but I, I think that was the right decision to do. Do because you know, we're publishing metrics that people can follow to show that we're actually putting our money where our mouth is. So we're deinvesting from the cigarette business, investing into these new products and products that go beyond nicotine and tobacco as well. And people can follow the decline in our cigarette sales and the increase in revenues from these different
0: uh, streams. Do you think you're going fast enough? I mean, it's been more than a decade since you've been talking about transformation and there's still the majority of your revenues I tell you, from inside, it feels really pretty darn fast. Um, I I joined the company in
2: 2006, and we didn't even have an idea for Mm -hmm. the new products then. And we worked really hard. I'm really proud of all my R&D colleagues who worked really hard to create these products and Amazing science to back them up. You know, first products went on the market in in national launch in in Japan in twenty fifteen. We're only seven years later, and now thirty percent of our net revenues are are, are coming from them. So I think it's incredible progress. If you look at the automotive industry or or anywhere else, I don't think you see that type of rapid progress. But Could we go faster? Absolutely. If governments and policy makers would help with some changes in regulations, for example, I think we could go faster. And we would like, you know, within 10 to 15 years, for example, to be able to stop selling cigarettes here in the UK. As an example, our CEO went on on record last year as, as saying that could be an ambition for us.
0: Martin. Yes, that's a very
4: interesting anecdote about how you came to the decision to do what you're doing rather than sell, because... I mean, a purist of corporate theory would say your board of directors, their fiduciary duty, there's a moral duty, which you might say at present points towards getting out of tobacco, and you've chosen a way to do that. But there's a fiduciary duty, which is to maximise shareholder value as best you can. And, you know, I realise you're a scientist, not a financial person, but I would like to have been a fly on the wall in that discussion where... The price at which it could have been sold, the tobacco business, was compared against the long term, you know, possible returns to shareholders from a complete transition that you've described. But actually selling the tobacco business to China or wherever would have, to some extent, salved the conscience of the board and the, you know, the shareholders behind it, would it not?
2: Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that the new products, particularly our heated tobacco products, are actually more profitable than cigarettes for us. So for the long term, for shareholders, it makes sense for us to to go into that business and manage the transition away as quickly as we can from the less profitable product and the more harmful product. So it's, it makes complete business sense for us to do this and, you know, make sense for public health as well.
0: John, I'm going to bring you in here in just a little bit, but before I do that, Moira, I mean, just on what you were saying about these smoke-free products being actually more profitable, I mean... An unkind soul or devil's advocate might say that by about the time you were talking about transformation in the noughties, and the 2010s, it was already clear which direction cigarettes were going, consumers were already going off of that, vaping has started to become a bit more of a thing, so did you not just make the more profitable decision rather than the more ethical decision? So look, I think it's it's a misnomer to think that cigarette smoking was disappearing.
2: What we see from figures from the World Health Organization, for example, is there are more than a billion smokers on the planet today. There were yesterday and there will be in 2025 because although smoking rates and incidence is declining, population is growing. Mm. So net-net you have the same number of, of smokers around the world. So, you know, we could have continued in the cigarette business and and remained a successful company, but we decided we didn't want to do that. We wanted to, we could create these products, we wanted to create them, so we set about doing it with,
0: I think, a laser
2: targeted vision.
0: John, any thoughts on what we've just been talking about? And also, I wanted to ask you about why transformation fails, which is often the theme of your writings.
3: Well, just one comment on the boards. One of the reasons that transformations fail is you have a board of directors that think narrowly and short-term and who block essentially management from making intelligent decisions that will foster faster transformations. I know one case of this very well, and it's very tragic. And in terms of why they failed, the the list of reasons is so long. They don't get enough sense of urgency among among enough people that something really needs to be done. They try to run it through the regular management hierarchy and operating systems as opposed to realizing it's going to require a lot of leadership from a lot of people and more network-type communication across silos. Uh, They don't get clarity about what this transformation means. What is your vision of the future? They don't communicate that out in a compelling enough way to enough people and get them on board. They don't get all the barriers to change enough of them out of the way so that when people start taking new actions that are vision relevant they have a chance of being successful. They don't get enough wins, as I say. They don't communicate and celebrate those wins. As soon as they get a little bit of success, urgency goes down and they let it go down. And ultimately, they don't institutionalize a new way of operating with new products and new effects on customers and stockholders, et cetera, by making sure that H.R. policies or the hierarchy and the silos aren't a headwind as opposed to a tailwind on the new way of operating. So the general answer to the question of what gets in the way, what mistakes people make is lots. And all the more reason that this needs to be treated with a degree of sophistication, that is beyond what we're seeing out in government or in business today. Although I am optimistic that that will change because the forces that are producing rapid, volatile, more change in our world are just growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And people that can't adapt to that by transforming themselves often more than once, are going to be the dinosaurs of our era.
0: Mm. Martin?
3: Yes,
4: what I was going to add to that is that this kind of transformation very clearly has to come from the very top. So if you look at the way all large companies started to address climate change issues, net zero targets and so on, in many companies it started kind of with the PR people with the comms department, inserting the word sustainable into the mission statement. But the board, you know, we're not buying in, the, the chairman and chief executive, were not buying in. What it requires is the chairman and chief executive to seriously and sincerely buy in to change and then drive it from the very top through the whole organisation. And I think a word that John may have allu- been alluding to but didn't actually mention is remuneration and reward, the fact is, why do people work for companies, they work, you know, for their salary and bonuses and the remuneration systems have to be adjusted to reward the good behaviour that achieves the transition.
0: All right, and More, a final word to you. What do you think is the biggest challenge for PMI in this transformation over the let's say, next five, 10 years? I think it's around
2: speed. We're ready, willing and able to go faster, but we see sort of blockages in the road in many different countries. So I think being able to sit down with stakeholders, with governments, etc, to figure out how, what we can all agree on, what would be the set of policies we could all agree on that would accelerate the decline in cigarette smoking and therefore allow these, these newer products to, to take over for, for people who, who don't quit. So I think much more dialogue is required, much more, I think, reasoned debate. Let's put the emotions aside. I know I work in a very controversial business, but we can talk about 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 it rationally and logically and and come to an agreed set of solutions that will help to make
0: cigarettes obsolete I believe. Well I hope that's what people come to the Spectators podcast for so Moira Gilchrist, Professor John Cotter and Martin Vanderweer thank you very much.